Okay, good morning, Linworth. Good morning out there. Have you ever been skeptical about your potential to change? Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time and experienced only superficial or skin-deep change. Yes, you've traded a few behaviors for some bad ones. Yes, you stopped swearing and even can quote a few Bible verses. Yes, you've replaced a few questionable hangouts with church retreats where the strongest drink is day-old black coffee. Yes, you replaced Netflix with Pure Flicks, though you admit is watching as much TV as you used to, maybe even a little more. Yes, you got rid of your Def Leppard t-shirts and your beer posters, and you now decorate your walls with scenic landscapes and the Serenity poem. You have changed a lot of external behaviors. You follow the rules, but you know something's not enough. Something's missing. Though you've been a Christian for many years, your heart is untouched. The same petty and angry spirit that characterized you before a Christian is still there. And maybe it's worse. Or the same passivity that defined you in your B.C. before Christ days continues. You keep your spouse at arm's length. Your ethics at work are shaky. And you cannot remember the last time you talked to a non-Christian about how wonderful your faith is. For older Christians who are stuck, and for younger believers just beginning the journey, there is hope. Hope of a change that goes beyond merely rearranging a few behaviors. Part of the message of Galatians is how the gospel can change us deeply. Some of you here perhaps have never become a Christian because you've witnessed so many professing, unchanged Christians. Others of you are trying to change, but have found it impossible, and you've given up. This morning, there is hope. And I want to answer the question this morning, how does the gospel change us deeply? There's three things I want to share. Number one is that the gospel remakes our motivation Number two, the gospel deflates our pride. And number three, the gospel calls me to a whole new way of life. Will you stand and you can open your Bibles to page 975, the pew Bible in front of you, if you did not bring one. I'm going to read the passage for today, beginning at verse 11, Galatians chapter 2. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated 
himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor or lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh or the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify or set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Let's pray. Father, this is your word in all of its passion, in all of its abounding grace and abounding insights about the true nature of life. And I pray, Father, that you would bring us into a place this morning where you would remove any obstacle in our mind and our hearts to receive everything you want to communicate and say to us, the great treasure that you want us to grasp and to give to us this morning. May nothing get in the way. May, Father, by your power, may you bring healing, might you bring grace, might you bring insight, understanding to us this morning. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. Let's, let's jump right into it. Number one, the gospel remakes our motivation. Now, you might ask first, you might ask the question, are motives really all that important? Isn't it our actions that really make the difference. And of course, actions are important. But God is also concerned with why we do what we do. Proverbs 16, 2, this is repeated in Proverbs actually, says all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Our heart contains our motives, our drives, our impulses, the things that move us. From our heart flows who we are. It is the heart the Lord puts on a scale and measures. Is what I'm doing for the benefit of others and for Him? Or is it ultimately for myself? 
Now, granted, motivation for any human is hard to judge. Have you noticed that? Yet we do make our best efforts. In a court of law, motives certainly play a role in determining guilt or innocence. The most elementary murder investigation begins with if you're a murder mystery novelist, if you enjoy that, if you enjoy the movies, you know the most elementary murder investigation begins with who has a motive. Money or love or revenge. Those narrow the search. Now, in everyday life, we may not always be able to judge our own motives, but God can. And there's nothing we can do to, to disguise our hearts. But how does the gospel remake our motivations? Look at verses 15 and 16. Just read them for a moment. Again, reread them, verses 15 and 16. And as you're reading, you'll notice the question Paul raises is, how are we justified? Okay, again, the definition here is important. Justification, Paul is borrowing language from the courtroom. Justification is a legal term. It is the opposite of condemnation. Justification is the foundation for our salvation, our being saved. If you are not a Christian, you may have heard Christians use the phrase, when God saved me. Or they may have asked you, are you saved? Justification says, in essence, that when a verdict is rendered at the end of my life, that I am declared righteous or approved and not condemned. So Paul is explaining how we are justified. Is it by faith in Jesus or by keeping the law? Paul is arguing that with the coming of Jesus, a new pathway has been established. Now you saw in verse 12 of our text that there were leaders that came from the church in Jerusalem. They're described as men from James. And these are the ones who pressured Peter to turn away from the Gentiles. They were believers in Jesus, but they had not yet broken free from their Jewish heritage and roots. They were arguing for the old pathway. Here is the old pathway. If we could just get it up here on a slide. and it's Three steps to the old pathway. First was to believe in God. And then secondly, it was to perform the works of the law in order to maintain or to prove our merit before God. And then we can receive salvation. This is what the circumcision party, or the party from James, what they were arguing for. But Paul introduces a new pathway, and here is how it goes, its steps. It begins with believing in God through Christ, and when we believe, we receive salvation before we spiritually perform anything. We believe, we receive that justification, we receive that verdict of no condemnation, and then we begin to do 
what Jesus did through the power of the Spirit. Life in the ministry of the power of the Spirit replaces the law. It's a different pathway. And so you might ask, well, how does this remake our motivation? It actually changes everything. Because in the old pathway, my salvation depended on my spiritual performance to earn or maintain my salvation. The focus is on me. The focus is on rule-keeping. And I am without security. In the new pathway, my salvation is fully assured and certain because of Jesus' performance. Therefore, I can be secure in who I am. Nothing can shake my standing with God. Even when my performance fails and I stumble. What does this do to my motivation? It allows me to love without fear. As long as I'm worried about justifying myself and measuring up before a holy God, the focus is still on me. But when my justification is settled, when my guilt is resolved, I can focus on truly loving and serving others for their benefit, not what I can gain from them. You know, applying this to our modern day evangelical circles, our pathway can go something like this. It's a subtle, but I think profound difference. What we say is believe. Then next, surrender completely and you will be saved. Or we say believe and then pray with total 100% sincerity and you will be saved. Now if we just step back for a moment, we can quickly see that we have added some tests. We've added some formula for this salvation. Complete surrender. Or praying with total sincerity. Now can I suggest that these two things are very hard to define. And can I suggest that they are easily doubted. And can continue to make the focus on my performance. For example... We can slide into believing that I have to stay fully surrendered to remain saved, even though the definition of that is very vague. Or, how can I say I am fully surrendered when I still struggle with a major sin problem in my life? You know, this is so important to me. It's so much a part of my story. I grew up in this religious home, the very religious home, and there was what I have called, those of you who know my story, there was a strain, what I call a strain of religious perfectionism in my home. It actually led to mental breakdowns in my family. And and for me, when I first started wrestling with this call of Jesus on my life as a high school student and then an early college student, I could not grasp, I could not grasp that Jesus' performance was enough for my justification. And I kept surrendering 
because maybe I've not really given it all. And I kept praying the prayer because maybe I never prayed it sincerely enough. I kept assuming I would need to do something exceptional or out of the ordinary in order to prove my worth, to prove that I was really into this. But what, what is that? What would that be? I would do something out of the ordinary and extremely brave, but it still didn't feel like that was enough. I kept comparing myself to others who were more devoted, and I consistently came up short. And then one morning in the basement of a college house on 8th Avenue and South Campus of Ohio State, I was in quite a place of desperation. And I was singing a hymn. I was on my knees. I was in a very quiet place. And the truth, this very truth that what Paul was arguing for, God was able to get it to me in poetic form through the second stanza of a song written by Augustus Toplady. What a name. Is that a man or a woman? I don't know. I don't know. Called Rock of Ages. Here is how the second stanza goes. Could, or, I'm sorry, not the labor of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know if I was tireless in my zeal for God? Could my tears forever flow if I was really, really sincere? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Not my zeal, not my tears, not my sincerity, not the demonstration of my surrender can save. Thou must save. You must save and you alone. That's exactly what Paul is arguing for here in Galatians. And that's what there's something in our spirit that militates against that. We're going to explain that as we go on. So this was a life-changing moment for me. I finally understood the meaning of the gospel. And now we can live our lives out of gratitude to God. And we can love with freedom because we've been completely justified. Let's go to the second point. The gospel deflates our pride. Hmm. The gospel deflates our pride. If we're going to ever change deeply, right, something's got to happen to pride. Pride and self-justification are very difficult for us to see. Have you noticed that yet? In a New York Times article entitled, The Stories We Tell Ourselves, philosopher Todd May notes that we're often telling stories about ourselves, mainly to make ourselves look good. He wrote this, that we tell stories that make us seem adventurous or funny or strong. We tell stories that make our lives seem interesting. And we tell these stories not only to others, but also to ourselves. He continues by saying, with the proliferation of various news channels, the internet, niche marketing, clustering in communities of like-minded people, most of us live in echo chambers that reflect the righteousness of our lives back to us. We are reinforced to think of ourselves as embodying the right values, as living in ways that are at least justified 
if not superior. May describes our tendency for self-deception. He tells his own story of being cut off by a driver who then proceeded to drive very slowly in front of him. How many of you have ever had that happen to you? Being a good New Yorker, May laid on the horn for the entire half mile that he followed him. Now he could tell that story in a self-justifying way. He deserved it. Maybe he'll think about it next time he pulls out in front of someone. But May admits with shame the real value underlying his actions, which was, I am not a person to be messed with. Now, such honesty is rare. We are far more apt to frame our stories in a way that self-justifies. How does the gospel address our pride? Okay, let's go back to the story here. Let's go back to the story, particularly of Peter and Paul. And what I've got to do right now, if you'll just stay with me, I've got to give us a little bit of a history and a backdrop a history lesson so we can appreciate this dramatic encounter that takes place. We've got to go back to the purpose of Jewish law that outlined customs on what to eat and what to wear and what you could touch and not touch. Those laws were comprehensive. If you were a Jew growing up in that era, you had to think about those laws every day. In some Theologians call these the clean laws. The worshiper performed them in order to be clean so they could approach God on the day of worship. Now, violation of the law made one what? Unclean or dirty or polluted. Why did clean laws exist? They existed to remind the people that God is holy and pure that knowing him touches all of life, and that they were called to an inward purity and righteousness. The problem was that over time, the symbolism of the laws lost all their reference to the very thing they were supposed to point to. The laws became an end in themselves, and keeping them was sufficient for a religious life, even though the heart was full of greed, and the heart was full of lust, and the heart was full of disordered loves. Now, even a Jew in that era knew they could not keep the external law perfectly. That is why sacrifices and offerings were made. And so with such extreme obsessiveness and magnification of the externals or the rules, the Jews became radically exclusive. Their Gentile neighbors ate the wrong food, wore the wrong clothes, and touched the wrong things. Therefore, to be close to or to associate with a Gentile was viewed as an endorsement of their unclean practices, a compromise. Now, in the ancient world, the sign of welcoming someone was what? Sharing a meal together. And therefore, a pious Jew would never share a meal or enter the home of a Gentile. Now we understand what's happening here. Peter, a Jewish Christian, is having lunch with the Gentiles. 
probably a box lunch from Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Something in his previous life he could never have imagined. He never could have imagined that. But God had revealed to Peter and to others a change. The external symbols, the reference points, the clean laws, the sacrifices had all ultimately pointed to Jesus and were fulfilled in and by him. It was no longer necessary to be circumcised and to keep all the dietary and uh, clean washing customs. It was no longer necessary to offer sacrifices. Those were shadows. Jesus was the real thing. So they were no longer necessary. It's not that Peter didn't get this. Did you pick that up? Paul said in verse 15 that Peter, you've been living like a Gentile. You've come to a place of freedom. But here comes the Jewish leaders. Here comes the circumcision party. Here comes the heavy hitters out of the motherload church. And they're still insisting on that old pathway. So Peter gets up and he abandons his Gentile neighbors. Keep in mind, these are brothers and sisters in Christ. Can you picture the scene now? This is awfully awkward. Now Paul at his independence comes on to this scene. Do you understand the risk that Paul took in confronting him? Peter was the most respected Christian on the face of the earth. He's the Billy Graham. He's the Pope. And it's hard to find any analogy to capture this drama. Confrontations like this happen all the time in politics, but they're, they're superfluous. They're excessive. Here's a try at it. Imagine the head doctor of Cleveland Clinic walking into the cafeteria of OSU James. Okay, got that? And there he openly rebukes the head head doctor in front of all of his doctor friends and medical staff for failure to treat a patient in the correct way. How do you think that would go over? Can you picture that? This was a big deal. Paul was taking a huge risk. But as Nick said last week, he believed that the very gospel was at stake. So... This is a story. Let's get back to our point, though. How does this deflate our pride? How does the gospel deflate our pride? Here is why. Because Jew or Gentile, regardless of race or background, were all unclean. They were equally unclean. And they can all be made equally clean through Jesus. The Jews saw all their traditions and law-keeping and cleanness as making them inherently superior to their Gentile neighbors. They were boasting and glorying in their performance. Their identity came to be built on that supposed superiority. The differences were essential to keep intact because without the differences, their very identity would be ripped away. This is why, by the way, in Jesus' very first, very first address that we have recorded, he poked his finger into the nationalism of the Jews. And you notice how they responded? You know the story? They tried to throw him off a cliff. The very first thing, message he gave. 
Pride always works in relation to comparing ourselves to others and finding an advantage, a righteousness for yourself, a contempt for others. If you see this picture, you can picture how the gospel demolishes any shred of reasoning that would justify cultural or racial superiority. It cuts it off at the knees. How are we made clean? Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17 in this. How are we made clean? Paul describes it here. He describes the gospel. He says in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we were also found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? This is what he was being accused of. The the, the legal heavy hitters were saying, you're making it too easy for people. You're promoting sin. Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely, that's not the case. And he says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I think what he means there in the next verse, if I rebuild what I tore down, if I revert back to the law after Christ has fulfilled it, if I insist on keeping the law as my venue toward salvation, and I'm not submitting to what Jesus did, then I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. I prove that I'm really only interested in self-glorification. And then the next verse, Paul gives the actual, he begins to hint at the reason for the law. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. In other words, as Paul veered into the law, he realized that this was impossible to keep. And the law kills me. I can't keep this thing. I can't keep it. I can't keep the external symbols, and I can't keep the in, internal righteousness and purity. I am impure. I am full of lust. I am full of anger. I am full of greed. I am full of disordered loves. I can't keep this thing. This is impossible. It kills me. That's what he's saying. We peer into the law. We realize we can't keep it, and it kills us. So what are we to do to be clean? Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. What is Paul saying here? It's similar to what he says in other occasions, that when we become believers in Christ, we are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. What that means is it's, it's as if I died on the cross. When he says, I have been crucified with Christ, it's as if I died. And then when I am resurrected to a new life, and let me just back up. It's as if I died, but Christ died in my place, bearing the judgment for the ways that I can't keep this and the punishment for the ways that I can't keep this. And then when I am resurrected to a new life, what he is arguing for is that in the same way when Christ was resurrected, I resurrect with him. And all of the rewards, all of the honor, all of the merit, all of the approval that Jesus the Son received is now mine through Christ. This is what Paul's saying. This is what makes me clean, what makes me forgiven. This is the gospel. And in the end, it deflates our pride. It brings us to a place where all sense of any kind of superiority in comparison to others is shredded. 
to, to nothing. Let's look at the third point. Point three, the last point, is the gospel calls me to a whole new way of life. Look at verse 14. Paul said to Peter, you are not acting in line with the gospel. Paul's actions betrayed what he believed. The gospel has implications on how we live. We can certainly draw from this that God desires to empower us to live according to the truth of the gospel. We tend to think that the gospel, that the truths introduced to me when I first came to Jesus are elementary. And they are no longer relevant. Just give me the meaty stuff. Get me to advanced Christianity. But what is the inference here? The inference is that the gospel shoots out on a line in every direction, affecting everything I do and the person that I become. The gospel is a prism. It is a worldview through which I see life and evaluate and understand life. We never leave the gospel in one sense. In Philippians 1, Paul said, Whatever happens, conduct your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. That was not only sharing the gospel, it certainly included that, but it was also how to live my life, including things I sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. None of this is for our justification. None of this is to prove our merit. Because he has already justified us. Now we live this way out of overabounding gratitude. And this passage in, particularly, in particular calls me to love people different than I am. Or who believe differently than I do. In chapter 5 and verse 8 of Galatians... Paul says the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. If you want to live a life that counts, it will translate one way. Faith manifested through loving others. The gospel gives me a, pow a power and a pattern to relate to those unlike me. Jesus said anyone can love those who are like them. Anyone can love the people that like them. Anybody can love those that are in their own echo chamber. Sons of God love those unlike them. That's what makes them different. I can see at least three applications here from this particular passage. I've already mentioned one with regard to how it has an impact on race and the way we view race relations and how the gospel brings races together. But here's the most direct application, I think, out of this passage. Peter pulled away from believers who had a Gentile background. And so I would just ask you this morning, is there anybody here in this room that you would not joyfully share a meal with? Anybody? Is there anybody in this room you would not joyfully share a meal with? Anyone you would not welcome into your home? If not... You best examine, and I best examine, the reason for that. 
Is there self-righteousness? That person is white-collar and you're blue-collar. That person is old and you're young. That person is black and you're white. What are the reasons? Friends, we're just, in case you weren't watching, we're just coming off one of the worst political fights we've witnessed uh, in about three months. Anyway, a long time. We say that, but I mean, there's probably something that three months ago that was just as intense. And I want to ask you a question. What if someone in this room passionately loves Jesus like you do, believes in Christ as you do, but they are on an opposite end of the political spectrum? Now, some of you think that's not possible. (laughs) But it certainly is. And I would ask you, are you more united with non-Christians who share your political views, would you be quicker to share a table with them? Or are you more united to genuine believers who do not think the way that you do? I think this is an important question. I'm not saying that when you get together you have to talk about it. I'm not suggesting that it's easy. But the focus of our unity, as Nick shared last week, is the gospel message. Politics is important. I believe that it is. And I personally am convinced that I should engage at some level. But uniting around Christ crucified is far more important And preaching him and living him is what will bring spiritual renewal, not political power. It's an important perspective as we try to balance the different tensions that we feel and then how that bleeds into the church and the way that we relate to others who think differently, see differently, in things that are very important, by the way. Last application, got to run through this one pretty quickly. Last application. I think this passage not only affects race, and not only affects the way we interact here in this room, and the self-righteousness that might be exposed, but thirdly, I think it really relates to how we interact with our friends outside these four walls. I love the story here, and I think I have time to read it. I read a story by a man named Randy Newman, who is uh, on staff with a group called, a university group called Campus Crusade. Uh, He writes about evangelism, and I want to share a story that he shared that I think relates to and ties to this area. The situation he found himself in is he got a phone call, he got that phone call one night from his son named John, who had been arrested. And he had been on a long spiral of drug use, and was now being sent to a jail, a juvenile jail, so to speak, a boarding school for troubled teens. And so he found himself in a network of about 200 parents at the school organized, all of them experiencing the same problem. And he says, at the first gathering, I found myself filled with judgmental thoughts. These people are terrible, I muttered. They must be horrible parents. All their kids are drug addicts. During one of the breaks, we compared stories with a single mom whose son had just tried to quit his gang and she was worried for, about his life. 
As the woman nervously took drags on her cigarette, I noticed a ring with a pentagram on it, the symbol of satanic worship, which complemented her orange-dyed hair, crystal earrings, and black lipstick. She had told us earlier during the seminar that she was indeed a witch and found her religion to be very helpful for handling the stress of having a son involved in drugs and gangs. I listened to her whole story, hearing two very clear statements crisscross my mind. The first one sarcastically announced, Well, no wonder your son is so screwed up, lady. What do you expect? You're a satanic witch. The second statement was softer, but no less clear. So, Randy, what are you doing here? It was a painful moment. Now, in this seminar, they had times to journal and reflect on their experiences. And in his writings, he began his journal entry by saying this, Randy, you self-righteous jack, I'll let you finish it. I continued to try to make sense of the woman's choice of religions. Here's what I wrote in my journal. What is it about witchcraft that would be so appealing to an intelligent, rational woman? Well, actually, it makes sense when I give it some thought. Witchcraft offers a kind of power, a sense of control. It helps people feel secure in a chaotic world. It must also have a certain kind of appeal because it makes you feel better than other people. It makes you feel superior. Am I condoning this? No, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying that it makes sense. I don't think it's good, it's good at all. It's very bad. I think this woman needs the gospel. Her witchcraft is idolatry. It's worshiping herself instead of God. It's sin. In fact, it's so bad that nothing short of the death of the Son of God could possibly pay for her sin. I felt rather wise at that point. But I still had several written pages of processing. Here's, he continues. He asks, now turning the light inward, what is it about my judgmentalism that could be so appealing to an intelligent, rational Christian man like me? Well, actually it makes sense when I give it some thought. Judgmentalism offers a kind of power a sense of control. It helps people feel secure in a chaotic world. It must also have a certain kind of appeal because it makes you feel better than other people. It makes you feel superior. Am I condoning this? No, I'm not saying this is good. I'm just saying that it makes sense. I don't think it's good at all. It's very bad. In fact, it's so bad, I think I need the gospel. My judgmentalism is idolatry. It's worshiping myself instead of God. It's sin. In fact, it's so bad that nothing short of the death of the Son of God could possibly pay for my sin. He dropped his pen on the journal, he writes, and something transformative began to happen when I saw that my sin needed the same solution as hers. I kept saying, my sin is so bad, it needs a cross. And that's exactly what I have. This allowed him to relate differently to this woman. The lesson that we learn from 
Galatians 2, as we relate to people outside the church, is that welcoming someone is not the same as endorsing. And as our culture uh, travels down the path that it's on, that's an important truth that we understand. To welcome, to love, to bring people into our home is not the same as endorsing what they do or what they believe. We see that modeled in the life of Jesus himself. Welcoming is not the same as endorsing. We see a kind of unity here that, as Nick said last week, if the church could capture this, we might just be able to point this culture towards Jesus because they'll see him as so something so radically different than what they ever imagined that he could be. Nick, you guys, you can come on up if you would. It's a perfect morning this morning for communion. It's a perfect morning to take the bread representing the body of Jesus, to take the juice representing the blood of Jesus. It's a perfect morning to remember, as it says in this last verse in Galatians 2, so precious, the verse that Newman was commenting about. There's only two ways, Paul says. There's only two ways. You can either try to merit and earn and work towards your salvation. And if that were a venue, then Christ died for nothing. But every Christian's tendency is to set aside the grace of God and to replace it with a works righteousness. This morning, I want to urge you to set down any shred of works righteousness, any shred of self-righteousness, to leave it at the altar as you come forward and take the bread and to take the juice and to say to yourself, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what we remember. That's what we celebrate. And then out of gratitude, we leave here and begin to live out and be renewed in the ethical implications of the gospel. You are welcome, any believer this morning, you are welcome to come, to take the bread and the juice, take it back to your seat, continue to reflect, and take it at any point here as we sing together these next songs. Pray, worship, get on your knees, stand, raise your hands, pray with a neighbor, pray with a friend, come to the altar. This is our moment to express the gratitude that overwhelms us when we remember the gospel.